She is 116 years old. In her life, she helped millions of tourists see New York, took hundreds of people on fishing voyages, was in a pop music video, and served in two world wars. She began life as a plaything for a wealthy family, and now she's left all alone, slowly dying. Today we have the story of a ghost ship in Boone County, Kentucky on the 149th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. I'm so glad you're with me today. Hey, you're looking good. Have have you been working out? I have something different on today's show. I mean, usually I talk about a person or an event, but I don't think I've ever told the story of an object, of a thing. Today's story is about a boat, a yacht that has a long and amazing history. And I want to thank Regina from Facebook for suggesting this. Me and Gina have been friends on Facebook for quite a number of years. We've never actually met, but that's the world we live in nowadays, right? Anyway, this is one of those you'll never know what will make a good story till you try type of things. I mean, when I first looked into it, I had my doubts. I thought, yeah, it's an old ship, but you know. But the more I looked into it, I began to think, yes, there is a story here, and it'll work for an episode. So, thanks, G. Now, like last week's story, this is a short one. So it gives me time to suggest another film for you to watch. So today I want to talk about the documentary called Lost in La Mancha. You see, back in the year 2000, Terry Gilliam from Monty Python attempted to make his lifelong dream movie based on Man of La Mancha. It was to be called The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. He would say that he has made this film in his head many times. It was to star Johnny Depp and Jean Rochefort. Unfortunately for Gilliam, his attempt to make the film, after almost a decade of trying, went horribly bad. It was one of those everything that can go wrong did go wrong. Fortunately for us, he was letting a documentary film crew create a making-of film. But as it turned out, it turned out to be a not-making-of film. So Lost in La Mancha is the story of a failed film, filled with frustration and heartbreak. But the film doesn't show just how a film can slowly fall apart without any fault of the filmmakers, but it also shows the genius of Terry Gilliam, what goes on in his head, how he struggles to put what's in his head onto film. It's a very fascinating look at Terry Gilliam and the filmmaking process. Now, if you've seen the film before, and I've seen it many times, I have a little update for you in case you didn't know. This year, Terry Gilliam is finally releasing the film The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. It's a whole new production with a whole new cast, this time starring Adam Driver and Jonathan Price. I'm sure Terry Gilliam's thrilled to finally have his dream project completed. I love a good documentary, 
and I love the behind-the-scenes filmmaking stuff. And I'm a Monty Python fan, so this film has everything. I suggest you watch it. Anyway, it seems like the weather here is slowly warming up. I mean, even though we had a snowstorm last week in spring, I think we're supposed to be in the 50s all day long, which is quite a bit of an improvement. So now, why don't you pour yourself a cup of coffee and get ready to hear the tale of a boat that the people of the Cincinnati area commonly refer to as a ghost ship. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. From the director of Time Bandits and Twelve Monkeys comes the adventure of Don Quixote. Cut, cut, cut. What's going on? I've been fantasizing this for a very long time. He gets tangled and off his horse. The budget is half the money we need. There'll be a thing so they can walk down. Captain Chaos wow. is completely in his element. <laughs> really violent. This film is in complete disarray. We've got costumes and sets, but no actors. <laughs> I've got an actor. I have an actor. Roll camera. The horse is about to move. Come on, horse. Come on, horsey. Cut! Very strange weather today. There's a large bunch of lightning about to hit us. Everything that can go wrong goes wrong. Yes! Nobody seems to be in control of anything. We can't make the film. It's not the film you want to make. <laughs> DOS, DOS, director on set. You fiddle with the fish. What were you thinking? There's the trailer for the film right there. Coming soon. And cut it! In Petersburg, Boone County, Kentucky, on the south side of the Ohio River, just off Lawrenceburg Ferry Road, she sits, slowly decaying, unprotected from the elements, with only the occasional passerby taking notice. Kayakers who come across her as they journey down the river keep her company for a short time, but then she's left by herself to continue to rust in the shallow, muddy waters off the small creek. Most refer to her as a ghost ship, even though, as far as I can tell, there has never been a reported supernatural event associated with her. And if there's a reason for a ship to be haunted by the spirit world, this one, with its long and impressive history, should be it. She now lies all alone, slowly deteriorating in the middle of the trees and weeds, abandoned by its last owner. A sad end for a ship that served in two world wars, contained a laboratory for Thomas Edison, and was the star of an 80s pop video, among other things. But before we get started, I want to say that for the telling of the story, I will refer to the ship as the Lady. Is it a sexist thing to refer to boats, planes, and automobiles as women? Probably. But for dramatic purposes, that's just what I'm going to do. J. Rogers Maxwell Sr. was a Brooklyn businessman, a banker, director of many railroads, 
and the president of the Atlas Portland Cement Company. That's the company that supplied cement for the construction of the Panama Canal. He and his family were active in the yachting community. He owned at least 27 boats between 1865 and his death in 1810. In 1901, he commissioned a new yacht to be built by the Pousset and Jones Company, a major shipbuilder at the time. The yacht he had built was 186 feet long and 24 feet wide, and from what I've read, I guess that's pretty big. It was equipped with a four-cylinder triple-expansion steam engine fed by two Almy water tube coal boilers, which could deliver 1,200 shaft horsepower and a speed of more than 15 knots. And to be honest, I'm not a boater, so I have no idea what a lot of that means. Anyway, she was launched on the 12th day of April 1902 as the Celt and owned by J. Rogers Maxwell Jr., I'm not clear if she was always Junior's boat or if he took over ownership when his father died in 1910, but it was the flagship of the family's fleet of yachts. The Maxwells were big on yacht racing and won the King's Cup in 1907 with their yacht named the Queen. When the yacht racing fad of the late 19th and early 20th century began to fade, the family sold the Celt to Manton D. Medcalf sometime before 1917. Medcalf was from one of America's oldest families who made their fortune in the textile industry. Medcalf gave the lady a new name. He called her the Sachem. Up to this point in her 15-year life, the Celt, now the Sachem, was more or less a very expensive toy for the rich, but that changed in 1917. You see, three years earlier... Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, sending the planet into the First World War. When the United States entered the war, they found that the German submarines, known as U-boats, which patrolled the Atlantic Ocean, were a big problem. The U-boats were being used to cut off supplies between the U.S. and Britain, and they were very effective. So in 1917, the United States began renting small boats that could outmaneuver feared German subs. The Seychem became the USS Seychem, or SP-192, now equipped with depth charges to sink German submarines and machine guns to defend herself. Interestingly, while in service for the war effort, she didn't actually see any action. What she did was carry Thomas Edison, you see, the United States was looking for new ways to fight the Germans, and they turned to the famed inventor for help. Edison was promising to develop submarine and torpedo detection and ship camouflage systems. The USS St. Jim was set up as a floating laboratory for his work. Edison began working around New York Harbor before sailing across to Florida and then off to the Caribbean. But Edison and the Navy had a few problems working with each other. And although Edison came up with numerous ideas, none of Edison's work was ever put into production. Edison published an article in 1923 accusing the USS Navy of pigeonholing every solution he had come up with, though he did say he enjoyed his time on the ship. When the war ended, Thomas Edison returned to his private enterprise, and the USS Saintchum, who, like I said, never saw combat, was returned to her owner, Manton B. Medcalf, on February 10, 1919. After some time, Medcalf sold the sanctum to a banker named Robert Taylor from Philadelphia. 
It is thought that Taylor used the yacht as a rum-runner mothership during Prohibition. Taylor sold the Sanctum when financial troubles became an issue during the Great Depression. Because of the Depression, many yachts were being sold at ridiculously low prices. The boat was bought by Captain Jacob Martin, a charter fisherman. And in 1932, he used her as his business, taking paying customers at $2 a person on deep-sea fishing voyages and moonlight cruises. Customers could fish or just party with friends and family. The St. Jim was the perfect boat for such a business with its impressive mahogany millwork and brass light fixtures. An ad for the fishing tour called her the fastest and finest. It was so large it could hold up to 250 guests at a time. Captain Jacob Martin replaced her steam engines with coal boilers with a more practical and modern diesel engine design. For the next 10 years or so, the girl was a very successful fishing vessel, but a new world war would call her once again. The United States entered World War II after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, and the Navy needed ships to patrol the waters off the United States, so they bought the St. Chum from Taylor for $65,000 in early 1942, with the condition that it would be given back to Taylor at war's end. She was renamed again. Now she was the USS Phoenikeet, or PYC-25. And in March 1942, she was commanded by Lieutenant John Landon, USN. She was used as a sea training vessel for student officers and sailors to train, and as a sonar systems testing ship for two years, operating off the Florida Keys. In addition, she served as a patrol ship around the Key West Harbor. After World War II came to an end, she was returned to Jacob Martin, who went back to using her former name, the Sachem. Unfortunately, by this time, after years of neglect, the girl was in very poor shape, and Captain Jacobs couldn't afford the cost to restore her back to a fishing vessel. He put the yacht up for sale. The company, the Circle Line Sightseeing Cruises of New York, which began operation on June 15, 1945 by Frank Berry, Joe Moran, and other partners as a harbor cruise company in Manhattan, needed boats to help their growing business. They wanted a boat with a distinctive look, something that would be good on advertisements and brochures. The St. Jim was the perfect ship. They bought her from Jacob and renamed her the Sightseer. Then she was named the Circle Line Sightseer, and then the Circle Line 5 in the late 1950s. For the next 31 years, she was a tourist vessel for an estimated 2.9 million tourists who wanted to see New York from the water. But times change, and in 1977, the 75-year-old lady was not fast enough or modern enough for the Circle Line company. She was considered obsolete and too expensive to keep into service, so she was sold for scrap. Everything was taken from her. All the equipment, electronics, furnishings, brass bits, and timber for reuse in other Circle Line boats. Even the pilot house was removed and became a booth for ticket sales on the Circle Line Pier. What was left of the lady was donated to the Sea Scouts. She was left in an abandoned pier in New Jersey. Imagine that, after eight decades of service, she was left to rot in New Jersey. 
But her time was not quite over yet. In the spring of 1985, a Cincinnati resident, 35-year-old Robert Butch Miller, was looking for a boat. I had been looking around, probably eight or nine years, for a steam yacht, he said. Not necessarily this one, and not with any intention of purchase, because I figured it would be out of range financially for me. He came across the boat sitting idle in New York's Hudson River. He had been looking for a ship like this and was able to purchase her for the low price of $7,500. After using a bulldozer to drag her out of the ship's muddy waters of the Hudson, he spent just 10 days repairing the ship to get her seaworthy. Over time, he had spent over $50,000 to restore what he called his dream boat, which now he went back to its older name, the Sanctum. One day while working on his boat, a limousine pulled up and a man got out. He inquired about using the ship in a pop music video. He said he was the representative of pop star Madonna. A guy got out and told me Madonna was shooting a video and wanted to use the boat for background, Miller said. I couldn't believe it, but I said, why not? So our girl, the 84-year-old yacht that had been used in two world wars and so much more, appeared in a video by one of the biggest stars of the time. She appeared in Madonna's video, Papa Don't Preach. After that, Miller sailed the restored ship around the area to avoid pricey docking fees in what is known as a dock pirate, going from one dock to another. At one point, he docked the ship at the abandoned Staple Pier in Stratton Island. While there, the boat was vandalized. Thieves took Miller's tools, a steam cleaner, engine parts, the 2,000-pound anchor, and the 900-pound propulsion head unit. In July of 1986, he sailed her to New York to watch the lighting of the torch of the restored Statue of Liberty. From the deck of the boat, he watched the celebration filled with music and fireworks. Once that was over, he went on, whether it was his intention or not, one last memorable cruise with friends. The story of the ship that had many adventures and many names finally comes to an end. Miller, with two or three friends, his wife, and his aging dog, sailed her from New York through the Great Lakes, down the Mississippi, into the Ohio River, and finally down a small creek that ran through some land he owned in Petersburg, Kentucky. He parked her in a wooden area, and she's been there ever since. He planned on creating a mooring platform to board her so he could continue the ship's renovation. But Miller said he just didn't have the funds to keep up the maintenance on the ship. He had always planned to get back to her, but he never did, and she still sits today. The ship was forgotten about until 2009 when local kayakers Henry Dorfman and James Happ came across her. It was soon then that locals began referring to her as the ghost ship. The property is not even owned by Butch Miller anymore, so the current owners of the land are the owners of the boat, and from what I've read, all those that visit her are technically trespassing. Miller said he feels bad that the boat has fallen into such disrepair and always hoped that he could restore her and put her in a museum for her historical significance. It's such a great shame to see a vessel with so much history just die there, Miller said. 
there has been fundraisers over time to get money to do something for this once proud lady. A site on the internet called the Sanctum Project, which has a lot of information I use for today's podcast, has updates on the restoration efforts. It also has much more history than I could do in this podcast. Of course, I have links to the Sanctum Project in today's show notes. So remember, if you're canoeing down the Ohio River and you come across this large, rusty bucket sitting in the mud, it's not just some old forgotten boat, but a, but a ship with a long and colorful history that deserves some respect. They began in the water, dark gliding shapes that violate every law of nature. They're not human, but they hunt human women, not for killing, for mating. Humanoids from the deep, starring Doug McClure, Anne Terkel, and Vic Morrow. Humanoids from the deep, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A few things before I go. Again, thanks to Regina for her suggestion. All of you should be like G and send me story ideas. That would be a big help. There were a handful of sources that I used to write the story, but a lot came from the Sanctum Project. If you are interested in the boat, I would go there. There's a ton of wonderful pictures and a lot more to the story. There's also a site called Mel's Place that has a bunch of fantastic pictures. As always, I'll have links to all these sites in the show notes for today's episode. Visit Sycon's website, and it'll be easy to find from there. Now, in the story, I kept referring to the ship as a woman or a girl. And in these days of political correctness, is that okay? I mean, I'm not really concerned, I'm just more curious. We live in a day and age when half the people complain about political correctness and the other half bitches about those who complain about political correctness. There's no gray area. It's black or white, just like politics. You need to be on the left or the right. Anyway, I don't have a horse in this political correctness race, but I do find the whole thing amusing. One last thing. I usually try to find sound clips that have something to do with my story, but there were just none today, so I hope you enjoyed what I used for my little in-between bits. So, how about the ending credits? You know, podcasting as a way to make a living is a poor business plan. Yet we at PsyCon do it anyway because we have a love of doing what we do. And not only don't we make any money, but we spend money to bring you these wonderful shows. You can help us do what we love. Just go over to Psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N dot F-M, and look for the Patreon link at the top. You'll know what to do. And a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? In the latest episode of Moving On, Brecky, Linnea, and Nancy talk about the Eddie Murphy comedy Coming to America. Personally, I like the film, but to find out what these three film lovers think about it, just go over to Psycon. You can find this and other shows at Psycon.fm. 
you know you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. Come on, just send me an email and say hi. I'll appreciate it. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. You would really help me out. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this show on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with another fantastic story. Thank you.